understanding that just how many challenges can be addressed by simply focusing on restoring the soil, that really blew my mind. Why is the climate change solution to simply reduce carbon emissions as much as possible actually short-sighted and missing a huge part of this equation? What does it mean that we've been managing against environmental issues rather than managing for them? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and our sponsor, Arbor Teas. Arbor Teas is a small family-owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in everything they do, from the sourcing, backyard compostable packaging, use of solar energy, and more. I'm excited to share their only sale of the year with you later, but for now, to our conversation with Judith D. Schwartz, a journalist who focuses on nature-based solutions to global challenges and the author of Cows Save the Planet and Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, I've always loved nature, but I'm old enough that I can say that I took nature for granted. So it's something that we don't have the luxury to do anymore. But I, what really pushed me or drew me into writing about this, I mean, that was always kind of a part of my life that, okay, yeah, so I do my work and then I go out and take a walk in the woods or something. But what made it central to my life, strangely enough, came from writing about economics. Hmm. And if I could say anything, it's very, it sounds very basic but living in a small rural community like I do in Bennington, Vermont, the very simple insight of understanding that every purchase that I make locally matters. Okay, that sounds really, really simple. But that launched me on a whole, taking just made me much more aware of local dynamics, much more aware of um, local ecology and agriculture and then toward how does our economy work and why does it seem that wealth is moving away from rural areas like where I am and into the city so that there's this incredible disconnect between what people in rural areas are experiencing in terms of their well-being and their ability to make a living and people in cities are. And that led me to explore basically our economic model. And the big thing that hit me over the head was the fact that according to our economic framework, the value of nature is zero. Mm. And that seemed kind of a design flaw (laughs) since every business that exists depends on functioning ecosystems on some level. That would explain why, in the name of economic growth, we're causing environmental destruction, when in fact, the health of our environment, besides the value, the intrinsic value that nature has, this environmental health is also vital to our health as well. So at the same time that we're 
causing destruction to the environment, we're also compromising our public health. Yes. And and when I say that I see it as a design flaw, I mean that in that really we are what we measure. You know, if we keep hearing we need economic growth, we can solve this problem with economic growth, then, you know, it starts to kind of seep into our consciousness. And we think that that's the, the way that the world operates. When in reality, our economy is human constructed, which means by definition, it can be redesigned. Whereas nature is, is nature. We can't just sort of change how nature works as much as we might like to try. And yet many people feel that or have the impression that our economy and how it works is untouchable, is non-negotiable. And nature is what has to change. So, mm. yeah, I think that we have some some kind of work to be done there in terms of our consciousness to get us to where we need to go. So today in your bio, it reads that you focus on nature-based solutions to our global challenges. What crystallized this focus for you? And would the opposite of that be technology-based solutions? Well, I tend to favor net nature-based solutions, but I and I often have to be reminded that technology is a is a tool that can be used there. But yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of technological solutions are employed without us really asking questions about what possible unintended consequences there might be. So I'm very wary about of technology. But that said, it can be helpful, and we need to be mindful of of how that might work and what the implications are. So what really got me here was really starting to explore soil. So what happened was I was at a conference and someone made a statement to the effect that over time, more carbon has gone into the atmosphere, more CO2 from soil, from how humanity has treated the soil over thousands of years, tens of thousands, or you know, many thousands of years, compared to the the use of and the burning of fossil fuels, and that you know really, really caught my attention because I thought I knew something about climate, and I thought it was all about fossil fuels. But once I started to look at soil, it was as if a whole world opened up to me. I mean, literally, the world under our feet began to kind of reveal its secrets to me. And as it has for many people, because we just don't pay attention to it, but understanding that just how many challenges can be addressed by simply focusing on restoring the soil, that really blew my mind. So, all right, so we've got climate change and one aspect of climate change is too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Well, if it came originally from agricultural practices that exposed soil, that caused erosion and all of those things that led to carbon going up into the atmosphere and oxidizing, so it becomes CO2. Well, then there's lots that we can do to bring that carbon back into the soil. So that was really exciting to understand. And how that occurs is through photosynthesis. And again, it's really, really simple. So in my book, How Save the Planet, I had this little, this explanation of the carbon cycle. And then I also had a bumper sticker version of what I think is a good strategy for addressing climate change in terms of the carbon cycle. 
and that was oxidize less, photosynthesize more. So photosynthesis is key. We want lots of healthy growing plants, deep-rooted plants that draw carbon out of the atmosphere and into the soil. So that was one thing. And then understanding the extent to which carbon-rich soil acts as a sponge and holds water in the ground so that when we get a heavy rainfall or a big snow melt, we can hold that much more water in the ground before it starts to flood. And similarly, we, are, we can hold water in the ground so that we are much more resilient in the case of drought. That was very powerful. And then understanding soil life and how soil life allows us to grow healthy food and healthy plants because you know, we often think that we, you know, we just need the minerals in the soil in order for that to be taken up by the plant, when in reality it's the soil life that is interacting and, and trading underground all these different elements, minerals, trace minerals, and nutrients that allows those nutrients to be pulled up by the plant. That if you have dead soil, that's just not going to happen. Mm. When you talk about this, what this reminds me of is how we look at human health as well, because we often just focus on the macronutrients that we need, like the protein, carbohydrates, fiber, etc. And a lot of times we leave out the littler things like the phytonutrients that we need or the microbiome from the food that we eat and how that impacts our health as well. So it's kind of a similar thing where in terms of growing crops, we can't just look at the macro things or, you know, the min minerals. And I believe it's NPK. You can correct me if I'm wrong. The Abs yes. nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium are those. Correct. Three. Yeah. So instead Correct. of just looking at those macro things, there's also the host of microbiome in the soil as well that we can't leave out. Right, right. It was very interesting. I remember one talk that I went to when someone posted an image of what's going on in the soil, you know, of the, what's happening at the roots, then an image of, you know, our digestive system. And they were so mirrored. And similarly, I remember someone telling me that, you know, how surprising it was when they looked at their son's vitamin and what was in this, their son's vitamin and what's in a soil test. So we are so connected to the soil. We are so affected by what goes on in the soil. And you mentioned the NPK treatments. And what's important to know is that the systems and processes that go on in living soil are so intricate that when we douse the soil in, let's say, a lot of nitrogen, a lot of nitrogen fertilizers, what happens is that short circuits the processes. So you get microbes in the soil that are saying, oh, okay, I'm getting my nitrogen now, so I'm not going to do the trades that would bring other trading with the plant at the root that would be giving that plant the other trace minerals. So that's really important to know. And then you also mentioned the phytonutrients. Well, those are higher order nutrients. And so you only get that when a plant has achieved a certain level of health and vigor. And plants that are 
in soil that has been heavily treated, plants that, uh, crops that have been given a, a lot of these inputs, those plants just cannot, by definition, reach that level of health because their health is compromised by those inputs. Mm -hmm. As an example, a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, having a lot of nitrogen fertilizer actually inhibits the building of carbon in the soil. Right. I remember reading a research study saying that the average levels of nutrition in a lot of our fruits and vegetables today are lower than what they used to be decades ago and how today we may have to eat eight oranges to get the equivalent of the same amount of vitamin A that our grandparents got from one orange. So this is a direct reflection of degrading soil. Absolutely. Yes. And in setting the stage for how cows and ruminants will come into this picture a bit later on, I'd love to go over some major issues we need to know about our current agricultural systems first. So in terms of soil, what are we doing right now that is compromising the health of our soils, other than the fertilizer piece that you mentioned? Okay, so it's the chemicals, the herbicides, all of that, because um, just to add a note about that is, you know, we're hearing a lot about glyphosate, certainly, and there are some very high-profile court cases about that. In the soil, glyphosate throws off the microbial fungal balance and and creates a scenario so where you have a lot of the harmful microbes and not the health-giving and actively trading microbes. Okay, but we can stay on chemicals all day, so let me just move over to the, to the next. Well, one is tilling. So when we till, and a lot of you know, we've had the assumption that farmers need to till because it creates, you know, a clear, kind of a clean slate to put the seeds in. However, that interrupts lots of processes as well, particularly the fungal networks. I mean, people who love soil, and there are many, many of the people who love soil, and more and more people are finding soil very inspiring. But people who do love Sorry, I had to pause so I could say it. Mycorrhizal (laughs) fungi, okay, which are these magic things. This is fungus that they extend the reach of of the plant. So when you have a functioning community of mycorrhizal fungi, then that means that the plant, you know, it kind of does the the gathering for the plant because it's trading for carbon with the plant. So it's ga- it's gathering nutrients and pulling it in and it's gathering water and all these wonderful things. So when you till, you interrupt that and then you also leave the soil bare. And when you leave the soil bare, you're losing carbon. And what else do people do? So tilling, um, leaving it fallow, So leaving uncovered soil is a no-no because you're not getting the, you're not doing anything helpful to the soil life. And also that means that you're exposing it to heat and water. So um, water on bare soil, it will wash the soil away, the topsoil away, and then cause flooding and sediment downstream. Also, I guess we can move into that area. Poor grazing practices Mm. are very harmful to the soil. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
That's a lot of things. <laughs> yes, a lot of things. But basically the thing about animals is that having animals on the land will have an impact, but that can be a positive impact or negative impact depending on how those animals are managed. And no, we don't want industrial management the way that it's done now. Mm-hmm. No, that is a nightmare. So all of these harmful practices that you mentioned, is this kind of the norm of what we have today in agriculture? Unfortunately, it is because everything is determined, everything is geared around agricultural yield. So it's not looking at sustaining a system. It's just kind of churning it out. Mm. And it's not looking at the quality of the food. It's just looking at the quantity of the food. And it's also looking at how much farmers can make. And the actual farmers on the land, they are really, really struggling because for the larger companies to make a profit, they need the individual farmers to churn out more and more commodity crops. So I was in Kansas last year and I was shocked by what I learned. I mean, several things that I learned. One, Kansas prides itself on feeding the world, and yet the state imports 90% of its food, Mm. and one quarter of the children in the state go hungry. Wow. So, yeah, so they're sending out commodity wheat and sorghum and soybeans. It's turned in, it's sent abroad, often to China, and then it comes back as products, you know, as packaged goods. So something's very wrong with that picture. But according to our economic model, that's the most effective way to do things. But it completely ignores the effects on humans and the effects on our land. And mm-hmm. when I say humans, my host in Kansas, it was, a, it was actually Gail Fuller's field school, which amazingly enough is going on right now. So my host showed me that like on the way to Kansas City in Missouri, where the airport is, there were so many new big buildings that were cancer centers, including children's cancer centers. Mm -hmm. That is the booming business. And that's really, really not okay. You know, it's really distressing. I saw, I met people who had been working in industrial agriculture and heard some really, really distressing stories about health impacts that their family members have had. So I just yeah, got chills. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is kind of real. Yeah. I want to read an excerpt on, on this note that you wrote in the book. A big problem Bandy sees is that much of the agricultural community has brought into the industry's mindset. People aren't looking at the biochemistry. They've been doing what they've been told to do. We've always assumed that our university teachers could tell us what to do, that corporations knew the answers. Corporations offer one-size-fits-all solution. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to blank itself. But by uncritically buying in, farmers are accidentally creating their own problems, end quote. So basically, these people sitting in offices, totally disconnected from farms and actually being able to observe how ecosystems function and also ecosystems are different from region to region but by offering this one size fits all thing 
they're, they're determining what farmers should be doing when they may not understand it better than the farmers themselves. Right. And what happens is that maybe the first year or the first few years, you get a big bump in yield. And that's when the farmers get hooked. So, you know, it takes a few years for things to really, you know, for the problems to emerge. But by that point, you're sucked into the system and you, you're dependent on it because your soil is no longer working. It's no longer living. So, yeah, so no, a lot of people that I talk to say, talk about it in terms of addiction, you know, and, and one, one person that I talk to a lot, um, Christine Jones, an Australian soil microbiologist, she talks about how, you know, you can't just go cold turkey on nitrogen fertilizers. You have to kind of wean yourself on it, be, off of it, because your system has become so dependent on it. And it sounds like GMOs is something else that farmers can become reliant on as well. I remember when I learned about it first at university, there wasn't any hard conclusions drawn about the safety of GMOs. But I do remember how they talked about how there hasn't been strong evidence showing that consumers eating GMOs are harmful to human health. But what does this leave out in terms of its impact on the farm ecosystem as well as the livelihoods of our farmers? The GMOs that we have on the market now, I think pretty much just about all of them are engineered so that they can tolerate high doses of herbicides, mostly glyphosate. Well, what we learn, so we're learning just how harmful glyphosate is to our health through these, you know, there are thousands and thousands of cases against Monsanto now, Bayer. So, so that's a problem. So, I mean, we have to understand that glyphosate is basically a, it's an antibiotic. That's what it was first approved as. So it's completely throwing off biological systems. Perhaps the most important thing to be aware of is, and, and Rachel Carson taught us this in Silent Spring, that when we are harming a life form, you know, actions that we take that are harming life forms are by definition going to harm us because we are part of the system. We are connected to those life forms. I mean, people are realizing how insects are not merely pests, but we, we share the ecosystem with them. We share our landscapes with them. And sure, they're annoying sometimes. But the fact is that when we try to, to control the pests, we end up causing more problems. So there's some really important research that shows that it, it, it compared farms that use pesticides with regenerative farms that don't. And the farms that used pesticides had 10 times the problem pests, the problem insects, than the regenerative farms. Mm. Because the first insects that return are not the more sophisticated predator press, pests. Sorry, it's, it's like a tongue twister. Um, the predator pests that are going to keep the, the problem ones in check, it's going to be the more primitive, you know, biologically more primitive pests that prey on our crops. And it makes so much sense. The answer to so much of this is biodiversity. 
and maintaining biodiversity. And that's one thing that our monoculture crops work against Mm -hmm. is biodiversity. So by the mere fact of growing single crops, we're already starting at a handicap in terms of the resilience of the systems. So the issue is really that similar to what we've been doing in conventional Western medicine, but we're really just trying to make the symptoms go away and killing the symptoms rather than looking at how the system should function and support the the natural way that our ecosystems function. Yes, I think that's really well said. And we tend to be so problem-oriented, like, okay, here's a problem, let's fix it. And not enough, as you say, system-oriented. So we're not asking the questions, what do we want, which would be health, either in terms of the, the landscape or a person, and how might we how can we create the conditions that would promote health? Instead, we're looking at problems to attack. Mm. And that brings us to where we are. Right. And as this relates to climate change, I know you also talked about how Peter Donovan brought up this idea that we've been managing against climate change rather than managing for it. Can you share what that means when we're talking about climate change? Yeah, this is something that I think about a lot. And so we can pose the question, what do we want? And if we're concerned about climate change, as of course we all are, we might ask, well, what in nature, when, we, when the climate is, is functioning, when it's, I don't know, I was about to say normal, but I don't know if that's even the best <laughs> word to use, what are the conditions? And then what we tend to see, it, that brings us to our understanding of the role of healthy ecosystems in regulating climate. But that hasn't been part of our discussion. And I feel very strongly that it needs to be. So, you know, asking questions such as, how does the earth manage heat, opens up a whole world of possible solutions, because we see that how our planet manages heat is largely through the processes of the water cycle, the cooling processes of the water cycle. Water conveys heat all the time as it moves, as it changes phase. And that was the focus of my book, Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a a Thirsty World, which is coming out in paperback, actually, in a few weeks. Yeah, next month. And the ecosystem part is is a focus of the book that I'm writing right now, which is on the growing ecosystem restoration movement, which is really, really exciting. The working title is Restoration Flash Mob. And when we start to look at how we can restore ecosystem function and therefore climate regulation, there are so many possibilities and people are beginning to really focus on this, which makes me really happy and excited. Mm. So your frustration is really that when talking about how to address climate change, the conversation is mostly about how to reduce carbon emissions. And yes. at the same time, we're not talking about how the systems that cycle carbon and water are breaking down. But we can't have the system break down at the same time as we emit more carbons. And even if we were to, I think you talked about how even if we stopped emissions 100%, but kept the same 
broken agricultural practices, we wouldn't be able to bring down CO2 levels for a, for a long time. Right. And we would continue to have many of the problems that we currently attribute to CO2-driven climate change. So the way I often express this is that I feel that the way that we talk about climate change has been interfering with our ability to do anything about it. And I feel that if we open up the way we talk about climate change, then we present opportunities for people to take part in being part of the solution. So one working definition I have is that I see climate change as manifestations of distorted carbon, water, energy, and nutrient cycles. Mm -hmm. So if we start to rebalance those cycles, for example, working with the carbon cycle and bringing more carbon into the soil, well, that's really helping a lot. That's helping address climate change. It also is helping climate resilience. And also that helps us get a start on working with the other cycles. Because if you are drawing more carbon into the soil, then you're also helping the water cycle because you're able to hold more water in the soil. Mm. And there's also been more and more talk about different types of technology we can use to address climate change and sequester carbon, like geoengineering and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan. And actually, I mean, the amount of money that is going into that kind of research is stunning. If we put a fraction of that funding into building regenerative agriculture, we would be in so much better shape. So yeah, I just feel like we love technology. We are looking for silver bullets and we're not asking questions about how these systems function. Mm. So I'm not a fan. You know, for example, pe people are talking about one geoengineering approach is like blocking out the sun to some extent. And what colleagues of mine are pointing out is, wait, we need to use that sunlight in order to, you know, enhance the health of our plants, grow more healthy plants, have those healthy plants draw down carbon, which can hold water and, and on and on and on. And so blocking out the sun is not helping us. Right. We need to look at where, where the weak links in our system are. It sounds like we think that we can outsmart the way that nature functions, but really we just have to understand better how nature functions and, again, support what we already know works. <laughs> yes, work with nature. I, I'm very impressed that work that's being done in the realm of biomimicry, which uses nature's designs as inspiration. Well, finally, I want to bring in cows into this conversation. So oh, yes. for our listener who has no idea what you mean by cows save the planet, can you introduce this concept to us? Yes. So cows saving the planet, that's a nod to a management approach called holistic management or holistic planned grazing in which livestock are used as a tool for large-scale land restoration. So up to now, we've been talking a lot about how the, the system works and about how healthy soil will 
enhance the ability of that soil to take up carbon and for plants to draw down carbon and for nutrients to be cycled. Well, when I started learning about this and I asked the question, okay, how do we draw carbon down into the soil? How do we promote that process and create the kind of plant communities that will do that? Well, the people who were talking about it back then were people who who did practice holistic management. So one way to understand it is that properly managed livestock, managing animals such as cattle, such as sheep and goats, managing them in a way that mimics the way that they behaved in nature, that kind of serves as a biological jumpstart for all of these processes that lead to healthy landscapes. For example, in nature, plants were managed by plant-eating animals, and plant-eating animals were managed by predators, like wolves in our country or in Africa, lions and others. So because of how we live on the land, we don't have those natural predator-prey relationships the way that they were. So we step in as humans and we fill that management void. For example, with cattle, we keep the cattle moving so that they create an impact on the land that is beneficial to the land, but we move them before they are on the land too much in a way that is overgrazing and creating problems on the landscape because, you know, there's too much of their waste and there's just, they're eating up what's there. So it's really looking at how ruminants behave in in the wild and how, because of the presence of predators, they kind of bunch up, but then they're forced to also move around. So it's like yes. that, that behavior that we have to biomimic in terms of managing livestock or animals on land if we didn't have natural predators. Exactly. Yes. And the changes in the landscape that this can create are amazing. I have seen it many places around the world. I've even seen it here in Vermont. There's a lovely sheep farm, a regenerative sheep farm that that does that work. But, you know, I mean, in terms of what goes on in, in Africa and Zimbabwe, where the Africa Center for Holistic Management is, I mean, it was amazing. Mm. And the wildlife there has rebounded. We saw lots of beautiful sable antelope that are just kind of hanging around there because the grasses are so are so much better than they are elsewhere in the region. Mm. And definitely to clarify, we're not talking about CAFOs or livestock farming or uh, factory farming of livestock, because that is still just as detrimental as we've been talking about them. This is like a very specific way of, of managing livestock that is beneficial for the land. Beneficial for the land and actually crucial for certain landscapes. So I've looked a lot at grasslands and grasslands are, you know, one of the dominant types of landscapes on our planet, about 30 to 40 percent of the world is native grassland. And many of those in certainly in, in drier regions are turning to desert and properly managed livestock, holistic management can reverse desertification, 
and I have seen it. And that's really, really important. So desertification sounds kind of abstract, but look at the Southwest United States. I mean, that is, that is desertification. A lot of it where in Arizona, a lot of California and New Mexico, a lot of those landscapes have been overgrazed and to some extent undergrazed in different areas. And that is desertification. And I think it's really important to understand, like sometimes we might see a desertified landscape, let's say on the news someplace in Africa, and it looks terrible. And, you know, livestock are dying. And we think, oh, my gosh, that's an impact. That's the effect of climate change. But it's important to understand that it's actually also a cause of climate change. Desertification is really important to deal with because it's a cause of climate change because we get dead landscapes and then we have le- we don't have plants that are able to cycle the water and draw down the carbon. And also when the solar energy hits those landscapes, I mean, it causes just heat. We get the heat island effect. Whereas if those landscapes had plants, it would be much cooler because you'd have those plants transpiring. Transpiration is a cooling mechanism. It's the upward motion of moisture through plants. And anyway, the desertification process starts this whole negative feedback loop that really is a huge part of the climate change picture in terms of what is creating climate change. I feel like when people first hear about the concept of cows saving the planet or, you know, having more ruminants on our lands can be beneficial to to our land's ecosystem as well as help address climate change. I feel like people may have some initial resistance to that because in this whole conversation, we've been told, you know, cow, cows are bad. Their farts are bad for climate change. Uh, the answer is to is to basically shift away from having livestock at all. But at the same time, maybe this idea is also what can spark some curiosity because it is a little counterintuitive to what we've been told. At least that was how I felt anyway. But now that you know all of this, what is your biggest challenge in sharing this seemingly counterintuitive approach to tackling some of our greatest environmental and public health issues? The biggest challenge is, yeah, that these narratives, these memes of cows are bad and and cows, their biggest impact is methane and people conflating proper agriculture with industrial agriculture, just taking a, st- a step back back, maybe the biggest challenge is people's disconnection from the land. Mm. So, you know, I understand people in cities, you know, who aren't going to farms don't really have the experience of working with animals or seeing how the presence of animals creates life. I mean, we're talking about generating healthy life in Mexico, the people, ranchers who practice holistic management are working with bird conservation organizations to create a corridor for endangered migratory grassland birds. So it's all about, yeah, it's all about working with life and understanding how life works. But if, if we're disconnected from where our food comes from, we really don't have the opportunity to understand that. So I guess I guess I'd say that's the biggest challenge. Mm. With this in mind, what do you think we can do as individuals to support a healthier agricultural system that manages for our earth's health rather than manages against the symptoms of our environmental issues? 
perhaps the first thing to to do is talk to farmers, learn more about where your food comes from, and try having a garden. You can grow plants anywhere. I mean, I just interviewed somebody who has basically like this unbelievable agricultural enterprise in an apartment that has just a tiny balcony. So she calls it her fifth floor farm. Because once you do that, and once you get your hand in the soil, you see how things work. You see the magic that happens. And then another aspect of that, I would say, is let yourself fall in love with land. You know, whether it's a park in the city you live in, whether it's an urban farm, or if you live outside the city, farms or a nature reserve, or your backyard, falling in love with the world as it is and with the creatures that come there is perhaps the most powerful motivator because I do think that we are motivated by love more than fear. And fear has Mm -hmm. been what's kind of, you know, how everything has been framed. Just a tiny, tiny example. Well, we had some sheep last year, so I'm kind of into livestock right now myself. And someone I know put together a goat yoga event. And how joyous it is to have these little animals around, to have them kind of jumping all over you. You know, nature (laughs) kind of provokes love and awe in us. And let's give ourselves opportunities to to revel in that. And how about our consumer choices? There is there anything we can do to support farmers that are actually practicing regenerative agriculture? I'm a big fan of farmers markets, I'm a big fan of CSAs, I'm a big fan of community gardens. But yeah, asking questions more and more producers are beginning to talk about regenerative agriculture. I mean, it's a it's really, really tricky right now because there's such a problem with our organic standards. They have been so watered down. There's something called the Real Organic Project, and I encourage anyone to look at this, but I understand how people don't necessarily have time, but just do what you can. Read labels, get to know different producers and companies, and and talk to people if you shop at a health food store talk to them. Um, I know in the West Coast, there's natural grocers, and I know that they're, they really take seriously where they purchase their goods. Talk to people who, who run your, the stores where you buy things. So just, yeah, keep talking, keep asking questions, and do your best. And acknowledge that it's, that it's part of the picture, you know, it, that we're all, we're all still learning, and it's not simply a matter of, okay, I buy this So I can just stop. Our food system is part of our ecosystem and it's all connected. And just to close off, if we were to ask our farmers one question, what what should that question be? Is it do you practice regenerative agriculture? What do you do for your soil? Or what what if we were to give our listener one question to ask their farmers when they go to farmers markets, what would you recommend us ask? Well, I recommend an open-ended question because then that'll get get farmers talking, I guess you might say, what do you, how do you ensure the health of your soil? Mm -hmm. And then you can learn about what they do. I think that asking a question about certifications can close off the conversation, Mm -hmm. but an open, an open question, or, or maybe ask them, what are you most proud of in terms of what you do for your soil? Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, give 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 the far- our farmers some love. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. We would, of course, love to keep learning more from you. And I know your book is coming out in paperback, Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. So where can we check out this book, Cow Sa- Save the Planet, your other work, and follow you online? Cow Save the Planet and the new paperback edition that's coming out next month of Water in Plain Sight are both available through Chelsea Green. That's chelseagreen.com. I have a website, judithdschwartz.com. I'm on Twitter a lot. I share a lot that I learn from from farmers and other people in the soil and regenerative agriculture movement. And that is Judith D. Schwartz. That's pretty much where I am. Arbor Teas is having their only sale of the year on Earth Day, April 22nd, where everything will be 15% off. Next time I tell you this, the sale will be over with, so do bookmark the date if you or your loved ones enjoy drinking tea and would like to try out Arbor Teas. Beyond their loose leaf and organic certified teas, they're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging, their operations run on solar energy, and all their business efforts are offset by Carbon Fund. Literally the most thoughtful tea company I've come across, so I hope you get a chance to try out their teas. To shop Arbor Teas Sustainable Organic Teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. And again, April 22nd, when you'll get 15% off everything. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow? I learn a lot from Charles Eisenstein, and on Twitter these days, he is posting these one-minute videos that just give you something to think about, and I recommend it. And he recently wrote a book or published a book called Climate, A New Story, which very much informs my thinking. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? First of all, I, I look at what my colleagues are doing around the world, and that keeps me inspired. And then the understanding that nature wants to heal itself or herself, and the, all the many examples of how when the landscape is restored and you start better practices on agricultural land, how the butterflies come back, how the birds come back, just how all these beautiful species that enrich our lives show up when we do the right thing. What are you working on right now for your health? I do a ton of stuff. I make sure that I go outside a lot and I cross country ski and whenever I can. And also I take karate. In fact, I recently got a brown belt. What are you working on right now to live more sustainably? I've had the real privilege in this particular book that I'm writing about, Restoration Flash Mob, a look at regenerative agriculture and ecosystem restoration globally. I felt that it was really important to kind of ground things because everybody always asks me what they can do. So I have a narrative thread of working to restore our land here in Vermont, and we have about 12 acres. So I had these fabulous experts come to my land and tell me what I should do. So for one thing, what I did was um, had sheep. And so learning about how animals act upon the land and learning about how we can restore our water cycle, working with the tree management 
and what kind of trees would thrive here and where we might take down some trees that aren't doing so, so well. So anyway, playing with our landscape, I think, is the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes you most hopeful right now about our planet? What makes me most hopeful is that I think that there, that people are beginning to shift. I think people, people are starting to see that we humans are part of, are part of nature not above nature and certainly not separate from nature. Once that really starts to, that awareness starts to really kind of seep into our culture, I think that it will be a tremendous shift. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? As green dreamers, notice things and be open to what nature can teach us. And yeah, just, just, Love the planet and let that love guide you. Just love the planet and let that love guide you. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can become a patron of the show to support our work and join our Green Dreamer network by going to greendreamer.com slash support. As always, you can find our show notes at greendreamer.com slash 130 for episode 130. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, Our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.